Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are now a part of the Morbidly Beautiful podcast network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community, from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we are so happy to be part of this spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now, on with the show. Spit on Your Podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spencers of Horror. This is the time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitty needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. On this episode, we are visiting the 1960s gothic horror with a spotlight on Barbara Steele with the films Black Sunday and The Long Hair of Death. The themes we'll be focusing on in this episode is the duality of women, good versus evil. So pick your poison and listen on if you dare. Come. Kiss me. My lips will transform you. So, Jess, why did we choose these films and why did we choose this decade and this theme? I know it's a decade that I am interested in to actually explore more. And I think you and I both discussed that this is kind of like a weak point in our horror background. Because I actually no, Sorry, I do watch films from the 1960s because I just realized I watch a lot of Vincent Price. And he yes. was. <laughs> I watched all it's his films. It's my weak point. It is. Yes. Sorry. It is more your weak point. But I also feel like it's kind of a weak point for me in the sense that, especially with Italian gothic horror and and Barbara Steele herself. I know she was in A Pit in the Pendulum with Vincent Price, um, but it wasn't until like a couple years ago that I actually watched Black Sunday and actually explored more of her career in the horror genre outside of Vincent Price and Christopher Lee and uh, Peter Cushing, like all those guys of the time. So yeah, and I think it's just fun to gravitate to a different decade and kind of like look at that little niche area of horror in there. For sure. And she has done... She, being Barbara Steele, has done a variety of these dual roles. So we could have chosen a lot of different films. Well, I guess just four. There's four of them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, of course, you know, we like to do a little bit of like popular film and then a more obscure film to kind of tie everything together. So we chose The Long Hair of Death, which is a very grim name. Yeah. So let's uh, start this podcast off with a little bit of a spotlight on Barbara Steele. You know, she's a highly trained actress from the British cinema. But what's really interesting is that she has often struggled with the mantle of being a horror queen. And she's had a very complex relationship with the horror genre, especially after she started starring mm-hmm. in it in um, Black Sunday. In uh, a really great article in Women With Guts that both Kelly and I own and both talk about a lot, they talked about in an interview with Barbara Steele. And she talks around having regrets around doing Black Sunday because she felt that her career ended up being limited and she was end up being shoehorned as a horror actress. So it's really taken her a long time to really appreciate the film Black Sunday and to appreciate Mario Bava's work. A little brief bio, she was born December 29th, uh, 1938 in Trenton, Werewall, England, and really don't know much about her childhood or younger years, and she really landed into acting. She never really sought this out. She actually went to the Sorbonne in Paris and studied art, and so when she was working at a production company, she was painting sets for one of their most recent uh, plays, she ended up in a role for the play because the lead actress ended up getting 
getting sick and so she was um, the understudy and she ended up being scouted by rank organization and this is where she kind of started her acting career and it just kind of she just kind of landed into it and a lot of times it was because she was gorgeous a very glamorous Mm. woman yes and she I remember reading that she actually yeah because she was painting sets that she actually wanted to be a painter she wanted to be an artist and not an actress which is a form of art of course but more of the like hand to to paper type artist so I think that's really interesting and as far as I could tell in my research she didn't really stay within that kind of like artist world like she did continue being an actress yeah she said it kind of fell upon her and then she just went with it and you know what I find really unfortunate and very common with her feelings about the horror genre is like many superstars of cinema Mm -hmm. aren't the most embracing of let's say their horror roots and I find that sad because so many big name actors and actresses have made their start in horror and that's just like a wonderful either you know stepping stone or something to just introduce them into film so I find it just really unfortunate that she didn't really take to it because yeah she was pretty fantastic now that I've seen a couple of her movies so it's I think it's kind of a shame yeah, I completely agree. And real and so that kind of brings us back to how she started in the horror genre and she was recruited by Mario Bava when he saw a picture of her in a magazine and he's like this mm. is my actress for well originally it was called The Mask of Satan, now we know it as Black Sunday. And during her time uh, working on uh, Black Sunday she, and she became a sensation, she's the only woman from the 1960s to have the same cinematic uh, career as uh, horror legends of Vincent Price, mm-hmm. Peter Cushing, Christopher Bella Lugosi, and she's actually considered Britain's uh, first lady of horror due to all her mm-hmm. work in uh, mm-hmm. Italian horror films and with Roger Corman. And I think one of the reasons why she was so prominent in the horror genre is because they call it her piercing gaze and dark look. Because mm-hmm. as we're going to get into today, she has she's often played a lot of roles of the innocent virgin and then all of a sudden the, the most vicious witch you'll ever run into. <laughs> <laughs> she plays both roles very, very well, which is not not at the same time but in the same film and not many women have done that so really neat it is really interesting too and she's gotten to work with some legends like she got to work with mm-hmm. Mario Bava Roger Corman she even worked with Lucio Fulci um, mm-hmm. worked on his film she worked with David Cronenberg when she played in uh, mm-hmm. Shivers or They Came Within she plays the uh, friend of the uh, the lead actress she was also in Dante's uh, Joe Dante's classic Piranha in 1974 <laughs> she plays the scientist and it was great because I remember watching in the beginning of the pandemic with uh, one of my partners and I was like oh my gosh it's Barbara Steele and he's like who is that I'm like oh we need to, we need to fix this <laughs> I've seen that movie and okay no I haven't seen Shivers um, but I don't remember her in that whatsoever but I also haven't seen it in probably like 20 years so it was it was great for me to like just look more into her career and see some more of her movies um, what what's her performance like in Shivers Oh, it's really good, actually. She um, plays a very seductive, kind of bougie, middle-aged mm. woman who's very, you can tell she's very, like, she wears flowy gowns and she mm-hmm. is very confident with her sexuality. And when she does mm-hmm. uh, get um, penetrated because she's in the bath when one of the slugs in Shivers uh, crawl up her leg and mm. she becomes um, kind of like a sex crazed maniac, she has a very hot lesbian scene with 
like oh. like the kiss and stuff like that like the you know kind of towards that so you can see like this kind of bisexual nature of her character oh. yeah mm, I bump that up on the top of my must watch list oh, then. I would I would. <laughs> I would definitely would yeah um but yeah so she has she's had an interesting career so like in the 60s and 70s this was the most prolific time for her work in the horror genre and she did the odd thriller comedy and then in the 80s and 90s she kind of took a break away from movies and she actually went on to be a TV producer and she had her part to play in The Winds of War and War Remembrance and she was also involved in the 1991 Dark Shadows revival which is anyone is familiar with Dark Shadows that's that soap opera with a vampire <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then we saw her come back later in the 2000s with minor roles in movies called Her Morbid Desires, The Boneyard Collection, The Butterfly Room, Lost River. I haven't seen these films. That she, you know, she's she comes in and out and she also obviously still goes to conventions and times when uh, people are showing Black Sunday and she's like she still has those weird feelings of like, I don't understand why people love this film, but... Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. is why, and I think, like I said, it's because she was typecasted because of her looks, and mm-hmm. because she has a very iconic look. And mm-hmm. I think, obviously, we will get into this talking about the film's Black Sunday. Like, there's so many images in that movie that are just iconic, and just you just know mm-hmm. when you see that, you're like, that's Black Sunday, Barbara Steele. There was in. One of the interviews that I was reading, a couple of interesting little tidbits. One, when they started just wanting, well, of course, it's kind of like a horror magazine or just overall because, yes, she's played some iconic roles and she has made her mark in the in the horror genre in her career. Uh, so everybody always wants to talk about and bring up those films. Mm-hmm. So when they did bring it up, she said, the thing is, the horrors are the only films one hears about, which is just a freaking drag. And then do I have to talk about the these films like she has a bit of a disdain for that and I think I can understand a portion of that from a just like a creative person's point of view mm-hmm. where there's in very very early at the start of your career and that's what people keep bringing up she's done other things you yeah. know I feel like some actors will embrace and just understand that those films are important to a lot of people and just yeah just fully embrace it and understand and then just enjoy that and then there'll be people that kind of have more of her attitude about it which like, I think I can see and understand both sides, but I really like when people can just just embrace it. People love those films. Either you know you don't get it, just embrace it and just have fun with it because they're really fun movies and horror is fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then there's this other aspect of it that I really, really liked. So with regards to horror films, she said, a lot of taste, minimal melodrama. There's always far too much screaming, too much noise in routine horror films, and far too little sex. Weird, isn't it? But there's very little sex in these films, except suppressed sex. Okay. I thought that was interesting. Definitely in those old films of yeah. uh, during a much more repressed era. Um, but not, yes, you find not a lot of enjoyment of sex in horror films because it's there as more of like a plot device for, for death. And then she goes on to say essentially that um, like a lot of filmmakers and people watching films confuse vulgarity with eroticism. And she said, I think sex has its own context. Nothing is all sex or all anything. Sex ha- is its own own threat, its own violence, its own poetry. It's entirely personal. But it is always more difficult to find somebody you'd like to wake up with than somebody you'd like to make love to. And I thought that that was a very poignant, wonderful portion of the interview. Just like really well said that if there's sex, like, yeah, they're mixing up something that's sensual and erotic Mm -hmm. with, you know, crass pornographic sex. And they just think like, oh, yeah, that's sensual. That's that's erotic. Yeah. It's like, no, that's just banging. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So she seems to be like more 
more more of a romantic, I guess. She wants to see a bit more romanticism, which we would see in her early films, which is nice. Yeah. I disliked that a lot. Yeah, it is. It's much more challenging to find somebody that you want to wake up with the next morning than to kick them out the night before and go to bed alone. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Can relate to that. <laughs> Yes, we can. We can relate to that. So much. So I feel like Barbara Steele and I kind of just like became friends in a way. Oh, okay. I, like, I kind of like, I get kind of where you're coming from. Barbara Steele's dual roles were The Long Hair of Death, Black Sunday, and Angel for Satan in Nightmare Castle. We almost did an Angel for Satan, but we thought that The Long Hair of Death, it did, it's a similar film in certain ways to, to Black Sunday. So I felt like they, they paired really well together. And Angel for Satan was our last Italian gothic film. So doing the research on this and reading more about these films, I didn't even really know like that this was like an an era of film the Italian gothic film so that was apparently a trend in Italian cinema between the 50s and 60s because of the original like approach to how everything looks essentially it was very aesthetic Mm -hmm. very gothic very aesthetic very atmospheric and I really like that so I'd love to just see more of those films essentially because they are stunning yeah, and they were the stepping stones to what we get to see later with Argento in terms of that mm-hmm. era of uh, Italian horror film, The Giallos, and then later on we'll mm-hmm. get our uh, Lucio Fulci. Uh, these these this areas of horror in <laughs> Italy that's building on each other. For sure, I love that. And I remember when we talked about essentially Argento yeah. mainly and like Italian horror and, and stuff like that in our Italian horror episode, we talked about like Bava being very gothic. Yes. And I'm now that I've seen at least two of his movies, Black Sunday, and Blood and Black Lace, I'm now like really fully appreciating what that means and and labeling him as that. So that also has been really great for me. So are we ready to move on to our first film, which is Black Sunday? Not since Dracula stalked the earth has the world known so terrifying a day or night. It's I who renounce you. And in the name of Satan, I place a curse upon you. Black Sunday is like no motion picture you've ever seen. There are those who believe and those who do not. But both must know the suspense, the shock of meeting the living dead and of bringing the dead to life. Look into my eyes. Embrace me. You will die. But I can bring you pleasures mortals cannot know. Sunday, the most terrifying motion picture you'll ever see. Satan, wearing strange robes and fighting with all the furies of Hades, arouses the countryside to a frenzy of black terror.
All right, so Kelly, tell me any stories around this film? Not necessarily. This is a first time watch for me. And I have heard about this film, obviously, for a very long time. And just for no reason whatsoever, I just hadn't watched it yet. And then I, last year, listened to a really fantastic podcast episode on the film uh, done by Good Morning Nancy. Yes. Friends and ladies, horror ladies over there. It was one of my favorite episodes of theirs. And it was so interesting. And it really just kind of solidified that, yes, I need to bump this film up on my list of horror movies to watch. And I was really glad that I did. And I'm glad that we're talking about it today. Yeah, I know. Same here. How about you? Uh, This is actually a second time watch for me. So I first heard about it when I actually got uh, the Women in Guts uh, Rue Morgue Library book. And Mm. I was reading through it. And I saw that interview with Barbara Steele. And of course, I knew who she looked like because I had seen her in mm-hmm. Pit and the Pendulum with Vincent Price. Mm. You know, she does have that very iconic look. So it's like, oh, I don't know much about her. So I read that. And then I'm like, now I must see this film. And somehow I got a, a hold of it or I borrowed it from someone. I ended up watching it. Nope, sorry. It's when I first subscribed to 2B TV. 2B TV, thank you. <laughs> I was able to watch yeah. Black Sunday there for the first time. And then, and then yeah, a year later two years later here we are doing this episode and I was like okay second time around I get to watch it and I also too mm-hmm. listened to that very same episode uh, by Good Morning Nancy that was like yeah I need to give this film another watch mm-hmm. again so excellent okay what did you what do you like about it I know you love this film so what do you love about it uh, what do I love about it I love the aesthetic I love the black and white gothic aesthetic I love the scene where we first we first meet Katya Right, and that epic scene of Barbara Steele standing kind of off to the side with the two beautiful dogs beside her and you're just and like it's this confusion I was like is she evil is she good because like you know she has such a piercing look and so um, mm-hmm. I love kind of like the mythology of Asha's curse and stuff like that and trying to like take over the body of a young descendant so that's what I liked about those films I love the black and white aesthetic I love mm-hmm. the characterization of um, the town because it, it feels like it's real in terms of folklore, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And I, I mm-hmm. always love that feeling. Like, I love mm-hmm. how those old films kind of build this community around the story that makes it feel like it's a much of like almost like a real thing happening. Interesting. I will second a lot of the things that you love about it. It's aesthetic as fuck. <laughs> and like, again, this is my first time watching it. And I was kind of blown away by how stunning and beautiful this film is. So it's just like, it's so beautiful. It's atmospheric. It's spooky. Of course, yeah, it's it's black and white, but like it plays and taunts and tees with the black and white aesthetic, mm-hmm. right? Because many films at the time that are, you know, all the black and white films, um, but... I feel like they just use like the blacks in such a different way and just how just the cinematography was just stunning. Yeah. So that fireplace. So the set design. Oh, my gosh. Right. Goodness gracious. Yeah. That fireplace and just like everything was just like so grand and ornate. But I also love like castles and gothic imagery and architecture and the medieval times and, you know, the Victorian era. And just like I love all of that anyways. And when you just like amp it up and just like run with it. mm, It was just like wonderful. I really do. I'm really enjoying the practical and special effects that are happening in these like 40s and 50s films. Like they can be really well done and just for the time period I think we just take it for granted a little bit you know what we have now but they did so much with so little and I just thought it was so stunning and I love the premise 
I I just I found the movie very compelling. I just I liked it a lot and I'm so glad I was able to watch it. That is really great too. Any dislikes? I would say like with a lot of these older films, a little bit of the pacing. It's yeah. like a little bit slow. A lot of these films aren't super action packed. Yeah. So like I accept that. So if I'm going to say that something I disliked, I would just say that. It's the same with like The Wolfman, though that was a little bit even shorter in a in a runtime, but it almost didn't even matter because I was just like entranced by what I was watching. So even if maybe the pacing was a little bit slow, it's fine because holy moly was at a package to wrap that all up in. I agree. Yeah. The pacing is what I have uh, sometimes problems with these films because sometimes I will get bored and then I'll tend to kind of like nod off a little bit and then miss something that's super important <laughs> to the plot and then like go back, yeah. rewind. Okay. Yeah. What yeah. happened? Because like it could just be like yeah. a minor conversation or a minor thing that's said and it like it's part of this whole bigger thing. And a lot does yeah. happen in this film. It's not a, mm-hmm. it's not a film that's just like, oh, it's this main premise. Like there's so many ins and yeah. outs. It's like all these hidden yeah. staircases and mm-hmm. places. So more more secrets are being undeveloped so yep. I would agree with you the pacing is where I've, I kind of fall apart and then sometimes usually it's sometimes the characterization of our men and women in these films mm-hmm. and I'm just like mm-hmm. oh god this man would not fall in love with this woman just in one moment no yeah oh yeah everything's like total creeper hyper yeah hyper like romanticized and a lot of one-dimensional characters yes yeah no i can i can agree to that for sure yeah i'd be like katja he's such a creeper yeah for sure and also like when we talked about the wolfman gwen we're just like "Mm." (laughs) but larry talbot is such a creep yeah, yeah. Like, this is all just, like, really unsettling for us to watch. I can't imagine being the person involved with that situation. Yeah. So, yeah, that's fair. I have a s- brief question for you, because I did sure. some brief some research about it, but I was trying to figure out why Black Sunday and why it was called Black Sunday. I kept Black Sunday, I kept in my research being referred to more of, like, a meteorological event and not anything that I could bring back to why it's called Black Sunday. Like, I know its original title is The Mask of Satan. Like, that's yes. what it wanted to be called. Yeah. And that's where we see um, the ep- the wonderful scene uh, that has that mask being put on Barbara mm-hmm. Steele's face. And I'm assuming yeah. that it was possibly because of the 1960s. And I, I should have probably done more research into this, and there's probably a reason why, but I'm assuming censorship. Like, to say The Mask of Satan and something like that, and maybe mm. Black Sunday just made it more ambiguous to what people... Want to mm. want to be mm-hmm. able to see? I don't know, right? Because maybe like Sundays, you know, referred to as like very like religious days, yes, typically holy Black Christian Sunday. days. Yeah, yeah, right. So Black masses. So maybe because she's a yeah. witch, and you know, mm-hmm. witches have everything. Black has everything to yeah. do with being evil. So you know, <laughs> yeah. Black Sunday yeah. is evil Sunday. <laughs> it's evil Sunday. My favorite day of the week. Uh, okay, that's fair. Okay, I thought maybe that you would have known, but no. I like, couldn't. If anybody else knows exactly in some research book somewhere, tweet us. let us know. Let us know, man. Tweet. Tweet us on the tweeters, please. <laughs> okay, so let's get into Black Sunday. So how we have decided to divvy up the episode today is we're first going to kind of talk about, besides Black Sunday, about our dark and evil women. Yeah. And, and then later on when we talk about the long hair of death we'll talk about everything but also go into our good 
virginal women. So now we're first we're going to talk about our dark and dangerous women. And also, of course, we've talked about it before. We're going to talk about it today and we'll revisit again in the future. But women as evil witches. So always that's where we're going to start. (laughs) (laughs) And I shared in our Facebook coven group this really beautiful and well-written article called Belladonna, Lilith, Gaia and the Spectral Mother and Mario Bava's Black Sunday by Steve Johnson. So there's a lot of aspects that aren't really related to exactly what we're talking about today, but there were some Mm -hmm. interesting aspects of it that I did really like. Also, the piece was so beautiful, just like the damn movie. So I highly recommend folks reading it. So in the the very first scene, and what I thought was really interesting, we have our like demonization of women, our demonization of witches. Um, So we have Aja's partner in witchcraft, I'll call him, a little partner in crime. Anyway, so her partner in crime, who, yes, both are persecuted for witchcraft, receiving the same treatment, but his is off screen. We just Mm. see his dead body over, you know, somewhere. Hers is a whole spectacle. His execution is not, it's just like this peripheral thing. It's not the point. What it is, it's her. She is a spectacle. We want to see women punished for their blasphemy and their sin. So it's like this huge, very grim, very beautiful opening part of the movie. But it's all about her and her damnation and her death. And I thought that that was really interesting. That's really interesting that you're bringing that up because now I'm thinking about that. I was like, yeah, in that scene, we see her being damned and we see her being condemned. And then we see her curse the family. So in also then instigating that she's even more of a threat because not only was she an evil witch in league with Satan and stuff like that but now she's cursed her own descendants so now she must you know so it it really builds up this idea of you know evil witches or evil women uh, being a a huge threat to society if they're not taken care of Grayabi it's I who repudiate you and in the name of Satan I place a curse upon you go ahead Tie me down to the stake, but you will never escape my hunger, nor that of Satan! The unchained elements of the powers of darkness are lying in ambush. Beware, Griabi. My revenge will strike down you in your accursed house, and in the blood of your sons and the sons of their sons, I will continue to live immortal! They will restore to me the life that you now rob from me! Completely. And we know uh, women of that era, and we've talked about this before, but, you know, they bring that up in the article that in the 15th century and during that time, that a lot of attention and a lot of these people that were branded witches and persecuted were our knowledgeable figures. You know, we recognize them as intelligent beings. They were our wise women, our midwives, our herbalists, and all of that. These women, or as the article, uh, the identity of a supernaturally sentient female, which I thought was beautiful. But these were the women that were persecuted as witches. They were threatening to all of our men in power. They could not have them, which showed us 
that the more, and this is coming from the article, which I love, the more the man or men deny their own instinctive, creative, and erotic side, the more the woman burns. Damn. That is. Mm, it's true. That is definitely a very poignant point there, especially um, from that article as well that I read, uh, that I read. It was, uh, he talked about how um, the spirit of Aja, Aza, uh, as she's liberated mm-hmm. from the psychic constraints of men, and she's like the image of all women on the eve of reuniting with their archaic feminine power via the woman's movement of incubating at the time of the film's production, right? So looking at mm-hmm. this idea of Aja's recreation is like a suggesting a cyclic, like a cyclical blood re, uh, renewal of menstruation. So, right, these power of these women, you know, and kind of like going back to like Eve and way, way back with the conversation of like Aja being our seething evil as mm-hmm. Lilith strong, angry, and aggressive. And she's a powerful femme fatale. <laughs> yes, she was. Well, especially with those wings. Wings on point. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, exactly. And then our women are in theory, and of course, based off of the thoughts of men during that time, the women were more apt to be addicted to magic than men because we are the frailer sex. Mm. We are the weaker sex. We can be more easily succumb to the desires of evil and the devil. And like you said, it all stems back to our lovely figure of Eve. And I'm going to bring up, because I noticed since the movie, I wrote a note later on in the film of Black Sunday, when we're, we notice as we're going down into like, I wanted to, I couldn't call it like, not a mausoleum, but like the tomb or like all the sarcophagus, like a sarcophagi of all like the, yes, why couldn't I think of crypt? Thank you. <laughs> but there is a big, beautiful painting yes. of one of the ancestors naked with a serpent. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Full right? circle. Yep. And I think that's because I think so in the main hallway, they have the one picture and that's of Masha, which is mm-hmm. Katya's mother. Who And then I think that photo of the painting of the naked woman with a serpent, I think that's supposed to be representative of Aja and, you know, mm-hmm. and how they're all linked. And this actually brings up this really interesting idea that was also brought in that article was the dual nature of the goddess and thus mm-hmm. the triple goddess and which is mm-hmm. often, very often related back to witchcraft. And this is looking at the duality of a woman being linked back to our mythological ideas of a goddess. Typically, goddesses in various cultures, they weren't all good, and they weren't all evil. Mm -hmm. There was a dual nature to uh, our goddesses. Particularly in Hindu traditions, we have Lakshmi and Saraswati and Parvati. Pardon me if I did not pronounce those right. But these are particularly interesting aspects of one singular goddess, and these are Mm -hmm. seen as her more nurturing, um, motherly role, loving, and then there's her other side, which is represented in Kali and Durga, and these are the wrathful, very protective, and they're very violent forms of the goddess. So it's interesting because if you look at all mythological goddesses throughout all uh, cultures, the goddess mm-hmm. is not one good or evil. Mm-hmm. She is a duality, yeah. and that's what makes her powerful. And this brings us to the um, the idea of the triple goddess. And this is uh, the triple goddess is typically in some uh, streams of witchcraft. I myself identify with the triple goddess. I actually have a symbol on, tattooed on my arm. And the, the triple goddess is the three stages of woman, which is the maiden, mm-hmm. the mother, and the crone. And we see mm-hmm. that represented in a uh, Black Sunday. It's really sub, a lot of subtext to it, but you see that yeah. in Katya, she's the maiden, Masha's the mother, and uh, Asha is the crone. And mm-hmm. all these women embodied in the one actress of Barbara Steele. And so you see when Katya's absorbing Asha's wild feminine energy, which is essential to not only her developing her own personality, but also being a reintegration of this energy into the male world and bringing it to the mm-hmm. doctors, and then to be able to you know talk against the patriarchal church and the insular masculine psyche that was in this article. Mm-hmm. But I really 
gravitated toward the conversation about the triple god because like I said it's linked back to witchcraft it's often how witches see themselves moving through the cycles they see themselves going as we age you know being the mm-hmm. maiden and you know fulfilling the role of the mother and eventually that the crone often typically too when this imagery is seen as well it's in parallel with the word witch we're also seen as both like a whore and in terms this is how women are supposed to be policed in this way mm-hmm. they create this like well if you're a maiden if you're frugal with your sexuality you're, te- you're termed a whore and thus you're a witch and thus you're a threat to men's power and thus you use curses and then you know and yeah. you end up punishing them and that's how you end the threats and yeah. that's where we get the evil image the evil image of a witch in Aja because she's powerful and she claims she's yeah. like I'm a witch there's no, there's yes. nothing different. This is who I am as a woman. You know, and that idea of the triple goddess is interesting and like the duality of women, but that it's just, we just have to embrace all aspects, all aspects of our life, all aspects mm. of personality to form one person. And, you know, when we see in these old films and we see in the witchcraft, we just like take this one aspect out of us and you're like, let's just hyper exaggerate this and make us really terrible. So then, yes, no, this is what you could potentially be or have like snippets of it inside you, mm-hmm. which you apparently shouldn't have, but can have. It's very confusing. And then we're just going to demonize you. We're just going to punish you and this is it. You can't be this. You can't have power. And it's powerful to use all aspects of yourself. And I think that's what I really have gotten out of this research about the duality of of women. And I feel like for men, if they would embrace this for themselves, and we talked about this for the duality of men, but embrace that for us as women. Aja compels the other doctor, Dr. Kruvajin, to submit to her will. She says, my lips will transform you. And they they do. And, you know, both of them are like, just like so entranced by this like well repressed a feminine force within her and if they can kind of take it upon themselves and they themselves can be powerful and interesting and transformed and I just thought that that was really interesting it, no it's, it's super interesting and like I said I never really considered these ideas when we go back to the du- idea of the duality of women and how it can be linked to goddess energy because we're often like you said we're often trained you're looking at one aspect of your personality and you hyper analyze mm-hmm. that and you be this and yeah. movies often say, well, if you have any kind of form of darkness in you and you focus on that, that's what you're, you're going to become. And, it, and it's yeah. like this kind of way of like, once again, sep- making women contemplate their duality and not really yeah. embrace any other sides of them because if they were, that would make them powerful and make them in control of their own lives and destiny. And which is what we look at towards the goddesses, right? When we look at any mm-hmm. goddess in any mythological, we look at them like, they had their shit together. They were mm-hmm. amazing. They were powerful. They were nurturing. They were loving. They were wrathful, you know, and yep. men looked up to them and men worshiped them. But for women, mm-hmm. we can't be both because heaven forbid yeah. men worship us in the way that we want them to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, and then, then we go to the, near the end of the movie, where there's, like, that transformation of Katya, but mm. she kind of comes into her own. Like, you can think of it as, like, transforming into an evil witch, or we can, like you kind of said already, is just, like, her subconsciously embracing and reconnecting with that yeah. lost, magical, spiritual, powerful, feminine image that, you know, we lost so many decades or centuries ago because we weren't allowed to, to have that. 
so around the time when this movie came out, you know, yes, the starting to kind of gain some agency and power within our own lives, 40s and 50s, 60s. And then we also kind of a boom in seeing a whole bunch of witch-based films. Yeah. Some positive, some negative, some really good at showing the historical aspects of witchcraft and feminine energy and stuff like that. So it was really neat. There's a lot, like you said, there's tons to this movie and I just, there's so much to it. It's text and subtext. <laughs> Which could kind of bring us to the idea of some evil witches. So one of the many negative terms that women are called is a witch. You're a little witch, mm. evil, you're, well, you're a bitch as well. But what I took out of this, you know, what's really interesting is that male witches, because they exist, some were persecuted and killed during the witch trials, but there's not really a negative stigma attached to that. They're warlocks and sorcerers and wizards and they're Gandalf. Yes. And yep. it's very positive and very empowering for them. What happened to that, you know, kind of coming on onto us? It's um that was something that mainly just kind of stood out to me. And, you know, especially early images of the witch, which we think, and we've talked about this before, and we talk about it all the time because it's so fascinating, mm-hmm. but the witch transgresses the norms of female power and Mm -hmm. getting this from one of our articles but witches are often called unnatural because of their ability to threaten men but ugliness is key so the haggish outsides of these witches are meant to match their evil insides and testify to their unnaturalness and since women are supposed to be neat attractive and as young as possible and so we can see that in the long hair of death and in black sundays in the long hair of death the mother the witch i don't remember her name and she's not the most attractive like she's kind of like downtrodden and dirty and her hair is a mess Mm -hmm. so yeah of course she's all bedraggled she's definitely going to be a witch and then Aja though she is very beautiful she of course has to be turned hideous by her mask punctured in all of her face and turns her into her monster because ugly women must be terrible we must be witches and she has that skeletal form under her gown at the end of the night when like he tries to like in the end they're right she's like a skeleton with this head and you're like of course like because her power is unnatural and because she's able to like you said just just guess the norms of female sexuality and power she needs to be evil. She can't yes. be good looking. Because if she's, in, but if she is good looking, then it has to be so good looking in the way that's almost repulsive. And I think that's why mm-hmm. Black Sunday was very successful in the sense that Barbara Steele was able to portray both that vulnerability and that repulsivity that yeah. keeps yeah. Uh, men away. And like it was said, you were saying too in the long hair of death. Like you said, we see these with the daughter, the first daughter who gets uh, murdered by the king, uh, the count. But like mm-hmm. she's very beautiful, and yeah. in comparison to her mother, who looks very beraggled and so. And it was interesting as you're talking about this imagery of, you know, when men are called witches or warlocks or sorcerers and they're typically set in some way to kind of help the hero, the rescuer or get what they need. And women are often portrayed as very grotesque as witches. And it was because mm-hmm. just last night I watched Pumpkinhead and I saw and you mentioned Haggis. You said you said Haggis. I was like, oh, my gosh, she yeah. looks so like uh, skeletal yeah, and ugly. Stuff she like that. is and the way scary. they talk about her. And they're just like, I wouldn't go near her type thing. But that's mm-hmm. awesome often how an evil witch is portrayed in a movie and if she is portrayed as looking beautiful as we've seen in the film the witch and as we've seen in um evil in um lord of the rings when uh (laughs) galandra when she has her moment of like i'm powerful like she looks they make her look ugly sallow and gross yeah Yeah, right and she's like oh no i couldn't believe i went that right because she exerted some power that is unnatural to women and a threat to men and so we need to call her an evil witch because this is an easy way to eliminate her and that's 
Unfortunately, yeah. that's what happened to some pretty historical people in, in uh, our history. Joan of Arc, Anne Boleyn, Cleopatra, all powerful women, all smart in what they were doing. Beautiful, also good-looking women, but they were accused of being witches, and they needed to be teared down. And then once again, mm-hmm. so then you look at them, and you've act- I've seen different images of how people make Anne Boleyn look really ugly. It's like, oh, because she was a witch. And they talk about physical characteristics of her being ugly. Other aspects, you know, the duality of women, other really, like, negative, like, stigma and negative adjectives. It's all about the adjectives adjectives today. A little bit of mainly adjectives, a little bit of nouns, but mainly adjectives. So (laughs) another really great article we read was called Two-Faced Women, the Double in Women's Melodrama in the 1940s. So we talked about like doppelgangers, the duality of women, the female double and whatnot, but like essentially are evil or in quotes and or bad women. And there's a lot of traits and a lot of adjectives that describe these women. Yeah. In the context of this article and definitely in the context of our bad girls or bad women and our women in these films, traits that they exude or a word I like harness are often viewed and via men predominantly their masculine traits Mm. quote intelligence strength eroticism and then there's feminine traits but it's really like we said unnatural quote to show masculine traits so there's the two different in male eyes generally speaking and in film and in these films so our bad women they are bitch they're bitches, they're harsh, they're aloof, they're witches, they're bitches, they're whores. Mm. But our good women are virginal, pure, innocent, sweet, and soft. You know, there's like two, quote, like opposing views of women. So we see that in a lot of Bar- those four Barbara Steele movies is the duality, and she plays that duality of women so, so well. Yeah, and like you were saying, back to that article there, like this was looking at women in the 1940s, and it was looking at the idea of the double, and we see, obviously, we're, we're talking about these with the Barbara Steele movies, but this trend's started in the 1940s where they show twin women, two sisters, Mm -hmm. typically one's good, one's evil. And Mm -hmm. then we see these in all these Barbara Steele films. One's good, one's evil. And where we get this concept, we get these very, like, the sympathetic woman who is the good twin. She is the desirable female behavior. This is what we want. So we see this in Katya in Black Sunday. She is desirable because she is Mm -hmm. virginal. She is pure. We even see she often, the cross is seen on her chest. Often we see Dr. Andre sexualize her and uh, getting a glimpse of her when he shouldn't be because he's desiring this of her. And then we get the hateful, cruel woman who is evil and the femme fatale because she's sexually aggressive and she's treacherous and she destroys men. This is our Aja. But what was really mm-hmm. interesting, this idea that came from this article like and all these adjectives that Kelly was talking about, saintly versus, you know, the, the immoral one, is that often this is these films are not necessarily about the duality of, uh, in the, the female psyche, but it's, this mm-hmm. is the broader cultural conception of women. So this is not how mm-hmm. women see themselves. This is how men yep. see women. And yes. philosopher uh, Simone de Beauvier, I hope I said that right, my philosopher partner might get mad at me. She wrote <laughs> the book The Second Sex, and she speaks about this, about women having this double and deceptive visage, and not because this is her essential nature, but because of the contradictory expectations placed upon her, which men view her. So in quote, mm-hmm. there is no figurative image of a woman which does not call up at once the opposite. She is life and death. She is nature and artifice. She is daylight and night. Under whatever aspect we consider, we always find the same shifting back and forth. And American cinema is obsessed, obsessed mm-hmm. with this duality of, of women on the screen, of seeing the evil twin versus the good twin, um, the masculine mm-hmm. traits versus the feminine traits. And men fantasize this. This is the male fantasy, that this duality of women is not necessarily what we see in ourselves, but is the mm-hmm. fact that most men, it, it exists within a sexist ideology and a male-dominated cinema where a woman is always presented as what she wants for the man, not for who she is. 
Yeah. And I've noticed and reading about this too, in film, as an audience member, as a viewer, we're often meant to sympathize with our good girls, our good mm-hmm. women, because they're so good and they're so just like wonderful and sweet and good natured. But the bad women are, well, they're bad. They're antagonistic. They're mean. They're, you know, they're bitches and they're hard and they're, you know, yes, dangerous, perverse, deceptive, sexually aggressive. They take a domineering role with men. They're competitive. They're strong and they're commanding. But the like passive sexually tame, childlike, a victim of her emotions, quote unquote, like we're meant to sympathize with them and relate to them and see that good girls are in these films are preferred by men. So this is how this one aspect of total human being is how you should be. And like you said, there's yes, there's that psychic struggle between us. And perhaps it's not necessarily about good and evil Mm -hmm. often, because sometimes they're not like horror films. They're not like that bad. But um, there, there is that struggle between, yes, the masculine and feminine aspects of her own consciousness. And really, we just like bring them together to make a unified person. And it's just, it's this duality that as a segueing into a question I have for you, Jess, okay. is <laughs> like, how do you feel about this perceived duality of women? Do you struggle with it? Have you experienced any issues with like oh. showing like a bad side, yes. or a good side? Where do you see yourself? Yeah. How do you conduct yourself? Like, how do you feel in like, What's your duality? Doing this in this conversation alone, just having thoughts myself, but even doing this research mm-hmm. and watching these movies, and now I'm watching these things in these movies and picking these up, being like, oh, we always mm-hmm. want to identify with the final girl because she's the good girl, right? We don't want to identify mm-hmm. with the with the bitch in the group who ends up getting killed like halfway through because of mm-hmm. something sheds. But yeah, I struggle with my duality because I would think I would view myself as the good girl. I am the modest one. I am shy, mm-hmm. you know, quiet and intelligent, and you know, I'm I probably am what you know men ideal of me which I you know makes which terrifies mm-hmm. me even more I'm like oh dear god I don't want any of this I wanna... you're the ideal Jess come on <laughs> <laughs> oh no but I do I struggle with that own my own duality within myself I struggle with the wicked woman or being you know the the she devil or the she witch or something like that because mm-hmm. I don't want people to view me in any negative way shape or form but I also want to be powerful and mm-hmm. I also don't think it should be okay for me like I struggled with this when I worked in a supervisory and um, managerial roles where I had to be a bitch sometimes and it was hard because I wanted everyone to like me and I wanted to like everyone as well but there were times I had to put my foot down and I'm like I'm sorry but this is just how it needs to be and I'm not going to be able to make my way in my career if I don't be this way And that, but then those mm-hmm. masked traits get placed upon and then I, I back away from it. Mm. What about you? Do you feel like you struggle with a duality? Probably to no surprise, do not. I love that you would be considered the good girl and I definitely would be considered the bad girl of the group. Um, you're the Buffy and I'm the Faith. We yeah, talked about, we talked about this before. Yeah. The light side and the dark side. Yeah. Overall, definitely a no, but I would say there's been the odd period of like moments in my career where I have been considered arrogant and challenging and that has only been told to me by males, not by women. Oh, yeah. Uh, over 14 years. And I believe that those are stemming from creating boundaries for myself, say no, and having confidence because those traits would be acceptable and not challenging if a man was that way. That never upset me because it also kind of just made me laugh. Like, obviously it annoys me, but no, it's just, I'm very proud to have like just been very steadfast in my ways and and don't care what anybody thinks. And if people don't like me, often people are intimidated by me. There's people intimidated by me in my vet clinic right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's because you I, stand up it's for confidence. yourself. You have confidence. You yeah. know your boundaries. You know yeah. 
your limits and you stay within it, but you also know what how to take care of yourself. And I think as you're talking and I'm as I've known you for 20 years, I'm just like, yeah, mm-hmm. Kelly has really channeled goddess energy from since I've known her because she <laughs> is no like is true in the sense that you have always been strong and confident and felt good about what you do and where you go and the decisions you make. But you're also mm-hmm. very kind and you're also very nurturing, like, you know, and so when people don't. So you're like, you know, when people go to the temple of the goddess and they're like terrified and they're timid, they're like, oh, my God, she looks like she's going to like, you know, smite me there. <laughs> and that's kind of like how sometimes people approach Kelly and they're just like, oh, wow, I'm not sure. And then they meet you and they start talking, you start laughing and you're, you know, you have, you create okay. these friendships and you're like, oh, my gosh, she's so sweet and caring and warm. <laughs> right? <Yeah>. so- <laughs> it's true. I am all, a lot of those adjectives of the, the bad, evil woman. Uh, I'm definitely, you know, kind of dominant. And we've talked about me on first dates. Yep. Um, yeah, there's a lot like right up front. But it's it's funny, somebody that I do work with currently when she first met me, she was just like, she was kind of afraid to get to know me. But also it comes down to when you see me outside of my scrubs and see me in like my, my everyday wear or when we're like going out together, mm-hmm. it's very different than me at work, which is like, I'm in scrubs. I'm not really wearing any makeup and like I'm dressed down per se. And then like we go out and it's a staff party and I'm drinking and like laughing. And she'd realize that like, it's just, I'm just such a goo. Yeah. And I'm just like, <laughs> you're like, a I young don't, I don't you're like a young boy. Sometimes <laughs> pretty much. I have a 12 year old's 12 year old boy's sense of humor. And yeah, I get goo goo gaga over cats and, and stuff like that. So yeah, so I don't struggle with it. I know that there that is a thing that I think is unfortunate that that women do do struggle with like, yes, in like, let's say a career kind of aspect. It's like, how do you uh, present yourself, you know, versus how you're actually going to act. So it's I appreciate and understand that that is a real life struggle for women. Yeah, especially when women get called she-devils. Yes, I loved this article so much. Interesting because uh, typically when we look at the monstrous feminine, it falls within three categories, the woman scorned, the witch, and the pure evil bitch. And usually a ton of times when you hear someone being called a pure evil bitch, she's also referenced as the she-devil. And the she-devil is what's supposed to be the example of what is rotten about the female sexuality. What is foul? Typically bisexuality is seen as foul, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So deviant. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the she-devil, she is often devious and she corrupts and she's even deadlier than a man. And usually the question is, is she even really a woman? What are your thoughts around that? Oh, well, and I brought up the article is the myth of the she-devil and why we judge female criminals more harshly. This was interesting, yeah. It was so interesting and fell right in line with, with what we're talking about today. Because uh, when you think about it, it says, there has been a tendency in fighting the women's corner for feminists to go into denial about women's capacity for cruelty and wickedness. But there are women who commit crimes as terrible as any committed by men. They Mm -hmm. just happen to be the outliers. So which brings me to, I'll bring up Eileen Wardos, which is a pretty prolific serial killer, because there are some women that feel like essentially like she just didn't essentially do anything wrong and that like it was all in self-defense. And like, I haven't looked into it like that that closely, but there are like I just saw recently a t-shirt that had Eileen Warnos on it when it said believe women mm. and I struggle with that because mm. she killed a lot of men she is a murderer and I'm sure that sometimes and what started her whole killing spree was an act of self-ence yeah um, and when you see interviews with Eileen Warnos later on she's not mentally well yeah and she spouts a lot about conspiracy theories and tinfoil hats and like aliens 
millions of people listening to her all the time. And But sometimes women, we are still human and we can legitimately be bad and like actually be cruel and harsh and just do terrible things. And it's weird that we feel so differently. So yeah, we talk about the she-devil who is in definition. A woman who resembles a devil as an extreme wickedness, cruelty, and bad temper. A malicious or spiteful woman. A woman that is like a devil. So another quote from that article that I really liked, it's because it's just like, yeah, men commit a lot of crimes often. Mm-hmm. We're like, ooh, that's terrible. It's almost like we accept it and we just tolerate it. Yeah. I feel like we've definitely talked about that aspect of it before. But then we feel differently if a woman does something really terrible. And we have because we're supposed to be so nurturing and loving and maternal. And so especially if a woman does something bad to children. Again, a lot of this stuff is not as common. But when it is, it's almost like this blown up. And like, I want to say blown out of proportion, but like all of this stuff should be blown up because it's also terrible murder and mayhem and everything but like once she's given that kind of label as our bad girl our bad woman we do not forgive them yes men we will eventually forgive or just like oh yeah well you know you did your time that's fine and then like we get kind of justice or maybe not but you know women in history have done a lot of terrible things in concentration camps yeah there's women doing performing terrorist actions in syria and iraq and in this in this uh, article they said terror is a man but wickedness is a woman, which is very different. Terror is a state of intense or overwhelming fear. Yes. Mm -hmm. Men provide that often. I feel like yes, they are terrifying and they dominate and they instill fear in a lot of women and a lot of people. Yes. Whereas the definition of wicked is morally very bad. Yes. So if a man does something bad, they're just like promoting fear and instilling fear. But if we do something bad, we are actually like morally terrible. Yeah. We're like either we're seen as like cold or calculating or we were ruthless and that there is something deeply disturbing about women within us if we are led to the point of committing murder. Um, Because typically women who have killed, it usually starts with in the home. It's usually a family member, a husband, or a child or something like that. And it's usually for financial reasons. But oftentimes it's just people have a really hard time believing that women could be that wicked or be that cruel or allow cruel behavior. Like I know in this article, a couple of them talked about um, women standing by when uh, men were torturing other women. And how even if they weren't participating in the torture, they were still participating by allowing it to happen and not doing anything about it. And that makes it more terrifying because, no, women are supposed to protect everyone. They're they're not Mm -hmm. only supposed to protect themselves. They have to protect their children. They have to protect their families. And when a woman fails to do that, then she is labeled as something evil. Like, she is evil. Right. Totally. And evil. there is yep. and no redemption. There is no, no redemption. redemption. For yeah. Supposed to have those expectations for men. You know, just thinking about it now, Carla Homolka, who did mm-hmm. some real enabled and did some really terrible shit. She did her time. Our justice system is supposed to work, quote unquote. But uh, yes, yeah, she paid her dues, let's so to speak. And then she's going on and living, you know, the rest of her life. And people are just like, no, like she is. It's, everything is unforgivable. Yeah. And like she is not allowed to to learn from her crimes or like do like you just that's it like that's just the end of you you can't be 
anything else. If you were not a nurturing, soft, submissive woman, you are nothing. Yeah, you, you violated your basic nature. And so there's yes. something unnatural about you and will always yep. be something unnatural about you and there's no way yep. fixing you and it's interesting because to bring this back to Black Sunday Asha is not only declared, declared a witch she is also a vampiric witch so mm-hmm. her humanity is also taken away from her so she is not only so she her, she has no humanity she has no soul she has no conscience so she is so evil that she had to be murdered by her own family but also at the table too that she curses them you know curses her whole family for 200 years so she has to be evil there's nothing natural about Asha from the very mm-hmm. get-go to the movie to the very end because of her wickedness, because of her cruelty, because mm-hmm. we've had her humanity taken away from her. And this is often what happens in a lot of these horror films, too, with these really evil women. In some way, shape, or form, their humanity is stripped away from them mm-hmm. through some kind of transformation. They're inhuman. And a little note on going back to criminals. So let's say a woman does commit a crime, a pretty terrible crime. Sometimes they cry in the courtroom and sometimes they do not. Mm-hmm. And if they show remorse, because they are human... If they do show remorse, that's met with skepticism. There's like, "Mm, that's Mm -hmm. probably fake. That's fake. But let's say a man showed remorse and he cried. Oh, oh. boy, let's release him now. Yeah. That's just, that's he's it. Showing, oh, God. Showing, he's emotion. showing emotion. And so we know there's something there's something else wrong with there. So, yes, you know. yes. And yep. then, of course, a lot of that, too, if a, a woman is uh, up on for criminal charges, so that they want to believe that she's insane. There's the only mm, way that she yep. could have done this is because she is insane, because she snapped yep. in some way, shape, or form. So we need to find some kind of evidence that has her mental stability was was faltering at the time because women are not supposed to be killers. They're supposed Mm -hmm. to be the victims of the killers. Not the other oh, way around. Oh, yes. We have to be victims. Can't be in charge of our own story. All right. We ready to get into uh, our pure women? Okay. And let, now we're going to talk about our next film, The Long Hair of Death. The Long Hair of Death. Our story takes place at the end of the 15th century. A time when the powers of darkness were at their strongest, and man lived in fear of the unknown. A time when witch-burning was a common occurrence, a public spectacle. The long hair of death. that will chill your spine and keep you gripped in your seat as you watch one of the most incredible stories of all time unfold before your eyes. You will see how the curse of a dying witch comes true as a village is ravaged by the plague and a man is hounded by his conscience and driven to commit one foul murder after another as he tries to satisfy his warped ambition.
Hair of Death, an unusual, unforgettable film. The Long Hair of Death. So this movie was also a first-time watch. I hadn't even heard of it before we were doing research to find <laughs> out which film we should pair with Black Sunday. Yeah, yeah. I was. I love watching new movies. I've watched so many since the pandemic. So this was. I just like. I love visiting <laughs> and discovering new films for the podcast. So I was happy to watch something new. And I'll just. I'll echo your sentiments too. It was a first-time watch for me as well. Excellent. Uh, so what did you like about it? What did I like about this film? I liked, once again, the, the gothic atmosphere of the film, as always. I love the set. I love that they actually filmed outside in actual castles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that made it really neat. Mm-hmm. I also really liked the story and mm. elements of it and how it was actually a little more complex than I originally had intended it. And also, too, yeah. I was also going to be like, what is the long hair of death mean? I don't see any long hair. <laughs> and then, of course, at the end, it explains it. Like, okay, that's cool. I like what you did here. But I definitely enjoyed it. I also enjoyed Enjoyed the representations of Barbara Steele. So yeah, her characters were kind of one-dimensional, but she was able to play her character of Mary, who you know ends up being the seductress, the innocent mm-hmm. one, but also eventually the seductress. And then you end up finding out it was all a plot the whole time mm-hmm. for the film. So I thought that was really interesting as well. So I, I like this film. I did. There, there were obviously elements of it that I found problematic or bothered me, but I think it's just because it added to the film in the sense of the story and the plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It was much more compelling than I thought going into it it would be. And not that I, you know, I want to like generalize about films of the era, but sometimes they're just not that interesting or at least like fun to watch and entertaining, I guess the word I'm looking for. But yeah, I really, again, it was a pretty Italian Gothic film. Yes, very nice to watch. I did really like the the story a lot. Um, side note, explain to me the long hair of death because I think I blinked and then like missed that part of that explanation. Oh, because of um, when Kurt gets killed and he's placed in that uh, statue that is made from all the peasants' hair. Oh, the hair. Because, right, Right. to say thank you for not dying in in the witch's plague, they all cut off the hair, which is seen as a thing of vanity. And yes, and they put it all creepily on that creepy yeah, thing. Yeah, it was yeah, disgusting. Yeah. And then burned Just it. Just covered in human hair. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know what? I did notice that. I don't know why I forgot. Anyways, yes. So I also did enjoy this film. Not as like visually striking as Black Sunday, though I don't know what is, but I did like it. Um, My one and only dislike, which might be what your dislike is, is how awful the men are. Oh my god. Like so explicitly terrible. Oh my god. Not expecting how blatantly awful the blatant sexual assault and rape and like power dynamics and the dominance and like gross. And Kurt is the worst. He's probably my, out of all the movies that I've watched, he's one of my like least, I'm gonna say like least favorite, but like 
the worst. Yes. Like, one of the worst men yeah. I have ever witnessed in yeah, a like, film. Yeah, like, at first he's being, like, a creeper, you know, following Ugh. Elizabeth around, but then he's like, I'm gonna make you my wife, and then she does have to marry him, and then he essentially rapes her on their wedding night, and I was like, yep. oh my god. Like, wait, yeah, this guy yep. is the worst. He is trash. So, like, I know it, like, added to, like, our revenge plot of the film and yes. everything, so, like, I yeah. get it, but it's just, it's hard to watch. And you just of- know that, like, yeah, the, especially the women of that time, it's just like, that's just what you had to fall in line. Like, Lisbeth never likes him and just, like, goes with the flow with it. But, like, what else is she going to do? That family kind of, like, adopted her into it. And she was an orphan because her mother was the witch that was killed, right? Yeah. So what 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 is she going to do? Again, you know, she is one of our and our main good women mm-hmm. in, in this movie. She just, like, couldn't have anything to say for herself. Like, she wasn't able to have any kind kind of power you're mine whether you like it or not you're drunk (laughs) don't you ever do a thing like that to me again leave me alone or you'll be sorry Kurt you know better than to annoy von Klug. As powerful as you are, you and your father, it is von Klug who rules this domain. Listen to me. Whatever it costs, Elizabeth, I will have you. Well, she even, like, and even then she technically did because he ended up finding out that she was the daughter of Fran and mm-hmm. Adele, the witch, who was, Fran was Count Holbolt's brother who was actually in power and then he wrote mm-hmm. the will for Lesbeth and Kurt and that's why Kurt had her killed and that's why Kurt killed right, Fran. Yes. Right, yeah. so he's he, he's a, he's an asshole from the get-go. He killed his uncle and then kills his yeah. uncle's wife and then, you know, kills <laughs> yeah. the daughter, the older sister, and then wants to marry yeah. the daughter because she's really the heir to all this. Yeah. But, um, you know, but also, too, like, she struggles with promise of getting revenge for her sisters, for her sister and her mother because they ask her beyond yeah. the grave, you need to get his yeah. revenge and there was that yeah. scene where she's like I can't do it I can't kill him he, he's yeah. my husband and I'm like hail him like, <laughs> <laughs> like, but kill that, him before he kills you yes yeah, essentially right that's his but that was the ideology it's like I am now married to him I am now his wife I must yeah. be the the woman of the household I must take care of him one little note of, of dialogue so at their wedding at Kurt and Lisbeth's wedding there was a, a moment during like the the ceremony where the priest is like in here are the sacred chains of matrimony. And I was like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Chains. <laughs> Not good bondage. Just no. like tying you together for eternity. It was yeah. terrible. Was shackled. Like, yuck. She is the shackled shackles. to her husband. Yep. Yeah. The shackles. <laughs> So, which brings us to talking about what's called the angel of the house or the angel in the house. So I wrote a couple of articles and finishing up a three-part series over at my other project, The Nevers Podcast, all about like Victorian age women and new women. And Jess turned me on to this really wonderful, interesting article called The Angel in the House and Fallen Women, Assigning Women Their Places in Victorian Society by Sarah Cool. And learn a lot. And a lot of it makes a lot of sense for women then 
women, the women in these movies, and can really relate to even now in our new women, modern women. So during the Victorian era, the dichotomy of uh, the two qualities of women, the good and the chaste, but then like the sinful and the bad women. And again, we see this in our films. We have our vampiric witch and then our good angel of the household, Katya, meek and mild and virginal and pious, long hair of death, Lisbeth is our like angel of the house. And then Mary, that descendant of the witch, which she's also the descendant. But then we have like our bad witch who's like strong and commanding and sexually alluring. Well, it was interesting going back to these, uh, this idea. And like I said, I brought Kelly, um, introduced Kelly to this idea because I remember learning about it back in history, well, back in my university days about mm-hmm. how back in the 19th century, there was a lot of confusion and upheavals. Like a lot of changes were happening in the 19th century, a lot of upheaval of norms and traditions. Things were being redefined and confirmed. Feminists were coming out. Women were free and they were challenging a lot of stereotypes and assigned roles. Mm-hmm. So thus men had to create new ideas to control women and protect their positions in society. Mm-hmm. And so this is where, you know, as Kelly caught up, they bring up this two... There's a third one. There's the free woman, which is where the feminists seem to fall under. But there is more we're going to focus on the idea of the fallen woman and the angel in the house or the angel of the household. And this came about because of a poem written by Coventry Patmore and it was published in 1854. And it was inspired by his wife. Mm. Um, and the woman named Honorarium, the poem, she displays being the perfect bride and wife. She is modest, she is chaste, she is innocent, and she unconditionally loves her family. And we see mm. this in, in Lesbeth, right? Even though she's yep. horribly portrayed by her husband and stuff like that, she's unconditionally loves her family and will do what she needs to protect her family. And it's describing women that are not of this earth, these angels. And this was really important to the British public and to politicians of the time because it described the perfect home. It described the position of women. And this is enforced the male belief that women belong. Their rightful place is in the home, in the private sphere. Whereas mm-hmm. fallen women were women who were seen of losing their respect and they were shunned from Victorian society. And these women were not necessarily prostitutes. A lot of times people think, oh, they were prostitutes. They were sex workers. They were actually also unmarried women in relationship mm-hmm. with men, unmarried mothers, actresses, unfaithful wives, and mistresses. So anything that deviated from being mm-hmm. a perfect wife and mother. And the angel of the household, she was untouchable. She was the saint. She was pure. And she could t- looked after the household. And when men wanted to do nasty, dirty things... They went to the fallen women. And that was okay. Because for men, it was generally accepted as, for some reason, still is that sex outside of your marriage or prior to your marriage is okay. But for women, this is a great sin. And they cannot have sex before they're married. And they cannot have sex with anyone outside of their marriage. And their reputation depended on it. If they did Mm -hmm. anything to Mm -hmm. damage their reputation, that was it. And if you became a fallen woman, you were a fallen woman. There was no redemption. Once again, no redemption. Even Mm -hmm. if you were a fallen woman, you couldn't be employed as a maid in a household because Mm -hmm. you could be seen as tarnishing that household but just being associated in any way with being a fallen woman and so this kind of like this idea that goes all the way back and I actually <laughs> I've talked about this before in a couple of my articles about Lilith and Eve and there's kind of a bit of a preview to something that will be coming out in a couple of months something that I wrote for Grimm magazine but looking at the idea of Mary and Eve once again the holy stereotypes of mm-hmm. the holy virgin so which we're we're basing our virgin on in terms of the pure and good and she's willing to sacrifice herself for God versus the temptress Eve who is the mm. cause of the fall of man and it caused men to be expelled from paradise all due to her seduction all due to her sexuality so we see this 
imagery in like Kelly said brought that up with uh, Katya. Katya is very pure. She's pure. She's sweet. She's mm-hmm. innocent. She wears the cross. She, mm-hmm. you know, I love the costuming in these in these uh, movies mm-hmm. because they really emphasize what she uh, represents. You know, the the white mm-hmm. flowing gown, the purity, the high neck collars. Same with Lizbeth. Yeah. She's very modest, high neck collars. And what was really interesting in this film, The Long Hair Death, is we see um, with Mary, we knew right away that she's, even though she acts pure, she is our seductress. But mm-hmm. in that scene where Elizabeth goes into the room and sees Mary and she's naked under the sheets. Yep. And I was oh, shocked. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. I was not expecting this to come out of <laughs> the door. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my eyes. Yeah, I know. And there she is. It's like, why are they all visiting her in her bedroom while she's just naked under the covers? I don't know. But uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, she is seen for like the first time in a state of well disarray and, and undress you know which is not in the eyes of people then a very respectable place to be and our angels you know the our the wives and the brides of of then like it became like a symbol of like respect and status for for men so they had oh they like look I have all these these children I have this wife that stays at home she doesn't have to go out but she just stays home and just hones like her ladylike skills of like painting and singing and needlework and takes care of the home and the husband and the family and that's like legitimately all she does and of course sex is not a thing that she is to enjoy it's something that's done to her for the men to enjoy and to just create more and more babies because like the more children the merrier and that's like another aspect of of respect for men yeah and you mentioned that like yes there's the wife and then there's a mistress and the wife could literally lose everything if she did something wrong and there's no coming back and we have those dichotomies of women the madonna the whore the nun the whore the the bad girl and the good girl and it's just like there's no no coming back from that and you either you're either or you can't be both even now sometimes we struggle with being both you know when we talked about that like should we be seen as like a nice woman or do we stand up for ourselves and be seen as a bitch or say something to anyone and be seen as a bitch and it's just by men generally speaking you know so and we kind of see this in the character of mary in the long hair death because she starts out very looking very virginal and pure but then you end up Mm -hmm. she ends up having an affair with Kurt so she ends up becoming the mistress they have sex before Mm -hmm. marriage so already she's a fallen woman Elizabeth turns against her the maid turns against her but yeah and then she's also seen as cold and calculating because then she's like prompting Kurt to be like we need to kill your wife you need to you know you can't leave me alone right but then she has her moments of like I'm not going to be a part of this and he's like well no you need to be a part of it and so like she gets pulled in so she's becoming that fallen woman we're being fooled but now that we've begun Let's not make a mistake. No one will suspect anything. They'll think it happened naturally. The poison leaves traces, but it'll appear as if she suffocated. Then nobody can accuse us. We'll be able to live together for always. You'll belong to me. Yes, Mary, I will. But then, surprise, she's actually the older sister who was killed by Count Holbold, come back from the dead to get revenge for her and her mother. (laughs) But so she's evil because she's dead. She's now a spectral demon that is is haunting Kurt and led Lisbeth astray. Because even though Lisbeth, she talked about how she couldn't do it, and it ends up being her sister coming back from the dead to do it for her. This body here is yours, Lisbeth. I put it there myself. That's my body. (gasps) Death can often reinstate life, but it's not like that with Elizabeth, as she is not yet dead. Now you understand, Curtis, this was planned by us to vindicate our mother. 
I am Helen Karnstein, daughter of Adele, who was burnt at the stake. Elizabeth is my sister. And you thought you had killed her. You went to the extreme, murder, all for the sake of possessing me. It's a pity that you did everything for a body that's dead. Well, Kurt, look at that body. Look well at the body that is really me. And it was at the end, Lisbeth, who lights the fire um, to mm-hmm. see Kurt dead. But you can kind of see that she's having this internal struggle with it at the same time, too. Yeah. But in a way, it was able to her protect herself by killing her husband because she did have status because he ended up finding out that yeah. she was the heir. And actually, everyone always asking, like, Lisbeth, Lisbeth, she actually has more power than her husband, Kurt. And mm-hmm. we don't realize that. Well, we do realize that as we're watching it. She actually has more power. She has more authority in this household than he does. And then you mentioned the new woman. The new woman, yeah, is this like other subset of women during that time, that kind of this new category that kind of came out of that like very confining, restraining competition even between women. Because mm-hmm. um, like what one has, maybe the other one wants and like grass is always greener. But um, they wanted to be redefined, like just needed one and more for themselves, obviously, because that is we talk about the box the box of like you have to fit here and if you don't fit here then you are bad so those labels we wanted more labels for ourselves so our new women kind of just like went on in society to just like get different roles have more for their lives like just more diverse lifestyles diverse type of women and we have come far and this article was really interesting I bolded this and she said that though we have come really far there's labels like stay at home mom working mom or career woman are still being used a divine descriptions for women so it's like you are a stay-at-home mom also still defining us within our relationships with men yeah you stay at home oh well you're you're a mom but you work you're a working mom Mm -hmm. oh but you're a career woman and i know what that label is like because that's been me my entire life but career women are usually single and or at least unmarried and it's just like again still defining us um living in apartments not owning a house yeah, yeah 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 exactly Exactly, exactly. Still kind of loosely putting us within those little labels within a label. Like you're a working mom, but yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You just like have a little bit of this. You have a little bit of fallen woman, but also a little bit of this angel in you, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of mothers, not that we're going to get into too much of motherhood because that's not why we're here, but it's, you know, we're talking about the domesticated woman. When you're domesticated quote unquote, so to speak, you're a wife and a mother. So you care for your children. You're going to supervise, you know, defer to your husband. You're going to be dutiful. You're religious. You're going to be modest, charitable, selfless. Mm -hmm. God forbid you do something for yourself and be seen as totally selfish. Like if you don't want kids, God forbid. And you have to be sensitive to the needs of others. But what was really interesting about this one little article that we read was, and I bolded this because I thought it was really great. There was a a manual that was released in 1673. Again, all this time where they're like really trying to put us in our place. uh, The female conduct is discussed under the categories of virgin, wife, widow. Okay, okay. Maiden, mother, crone. Essentially, yeah. I'm defining adult women according to the relations with men and proffering general prescriptive advice about submissive female behavior. But so again, like you're a virgin, we've talked about virgins, you're a wife or you're a widow. And in that, 
mother should be in that, but also in that category, there's still a bit of, especially during that time, there would be, again, a categorization of us in relation to our relationship with men. But, you know, virgin until your life is completely changed by having sex with a man, but then you're a wife and your life completely changes again because you've now married and now you fit in this box. Oh, and now you're a widow. Your husband has died. God forbid, you know, and like, we're just like, we're these things. We're a virgin, we're a wife, we're a widow, or we're a mother which you could throw into that and like good women are good mothers right we just we kind of know that you know we do everything good but bad women are bad mothers or we're not mothers at all well it's interesting because um when you're talking about that i was thinking about in the film the scene between katya and andres when they're in the garden together and she's talking about the sadness that she has of this emptiness mm-hmm. in her life and he keeps like emphasizing to her being like i yeah. like he's not saying it full out but he's saying like your life isn't empty i'm in your life now We'll get married, we'll have a family, we'll get you pregnant, and then you'll feel fulfilled because you'll have a baby in you and you'll have me, right? And you're like, no, damn it, man, she's talking about, like, she feels cursed, like, right? But she has that, she is that virginal woman um, because she takes care of her her father, she takes care of her brother, you know, Andreas falls in love with her, that whole expectation of, oh, you know, we're going to get married and have this wonderful life. Right away. Yep. And then for Lisbeth, you know, having being thrown into a loveless marriage and being, you know, sexually coerced and abused in her marriage, she also still commits herself to it because she is the woman of the household. She is the, yeah. the domesticated woman. She is, and she is fulfilling her roles in the eyes of God and society and yeah. herself um, by being the mistress of the household, being modest and chaste and religious. And yeah. Good point. I remember when I was watching that, when I was watching the film, noticing that part, uh, I should have made a note about it, but yeah. And it's like, she wants more from life. She's got the descendant of like this really wonderful, powerful woman inside her. She wants more than what you are offering to her because there's more than life than just marrying you and popping out a bunch of kids. Because that's because that's where her life ends, essentially. Her life will end once she becomes married. Because she'll get regulated to the private space, right? Yep. And that's women's lives become private and they have to now practice discretion because this is more important for their reputation. If they are outlandish Mm -hmm. and seen out in public, they are damaged their reputation so then they must regulate themselves and be private and hide away from the world which was interesting because I later on I know we talk about that we're going to talk a little bit about this but this whole fetishization of the innocent Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. innocent women in the 19th century there was a lot of artwork symbolizing or sexualizing uh, women shy women in their bodies and body language and the women that and the clothes that women wear and seeing shy women as very appealing to men because she is modest and because you know everything about her is hidden so it makes the men feel more sexually attracted to her because he now he must dominate her. He must have this virtuous woman and have her mysteries and absorb them and take them in. And it also indicates how faithful she will be to him because she'll mm-hmm. never be a threat to him because she's not a sexually independent woman. It's so mm-hmm. sexually independent women that are not seen appealing to men because she is dangerous him. Yeah, just another era where women were trying to gain more, just a better, bigger, more diverse life for themselves. And okay, now we're going to have this like run of artwork that we're all going to look at to say, nope, you know what? Nope, let's just reel you back in a little bit. And like, this is really attractive to men. So maybe don't act like, you know, you want it all type of thing. And don't be out there sleeping around because we remember 
being submissive and demure and shy is attractive. So don't forget that. We can't. How dare us? How dare we even ever begin to forget that that's how we should be? Well, even then, sometimes you think of the coin of phrase when women are getting dressed up and so that, and you sometimes hear like, oh, don't show everything, honey. You gotta, gotta save some little mystery for those men, right? <laughs> to make them want you more, you need yeah. to not give them everything. In the end, they still want everything anyways. Yep. So where did that come from? (laughs) We also were told that, well, you know what? Those teenage boys, I just want you for one thing. I was like, yeah, Yeah. but like that just doesn't matter what I wear. They're still thinking about what's underneath because that's what matters. Our poor innocent women, right? There are virginal women that they live a fine line because you can't stay in that position for very long. At some point, you're going to have sex and you're no longer going to be seen as pure. And that's why men have these weird fancies of virgins. Refer back to our episode on teeth about uh, where we can get into (laughs) our virginity and the appeal of that. And now we've arrived at Spencer's final thoughts, this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our new sponsor, Brutalities. Since we're spinsters, we obviously love tea. One of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold, rainy day. Or a good book. Yes, with a hot mug of delicious tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more. But what really stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky names. With Shy the 13th and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in home. I love Croconut. And I'm currently obsessed with Screamsicle. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian listeners, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. My final thoughts about the duality of women, Black Sunday, and the long hair of death. So I'm going to go back to, refer back to The Angel in the House and the Fallen Woman, that really wonderful article. And a quote of it is, in fact, one can say that it would be, it would have been impossible for one to exist without the other. In other words, in order for the categories to be most effective, women needed to be pushed to the extreme ends of the spectrum. The domestic angels needed to be glorified in order for the transgressions of the fallen women to appear more shameful. So the differences between them would appear insurmountable. There have been centuries, absolute centuries of unrealistic, unsustainable, oppressive, and damaging expectations placed upon women. The duality of women for both sides, the good and bad, in quotes, are celebrated, but then also damned at the same time. It just, it really seems like we can't win. We can't win. And like the duality of men that we discussed in our last episode, I think we truly need to embrace all sides of ourselves to create our own personal, individual, authentic personality. The darkness and the light have to come together. I have always encouraged people to embrace their dark side, whatever that consists of, as long as it doesn't harm other people and animals. Just embrace it all. Your quote masculine, quote feminine traits, just put everything together to make you, to make a whole balanced person. I have always loved and enjoyed the dark evil women in film because I personally think that they represent freedom, freedom of expectations of and of the self. There was a little quote in one of the, the research articles that said a virtuous life is not static. I love this. Being a good person or a good woman, it ebbs and flows. We're not perfect. 
We're not perfect. And we're going to get bitchy sometimes or bitchy in quotes. But that just becomes comes because we're passionate. We're getting bitchy. It's because we're passionate about something or maybe we're being oppressed about something and we can't fully be who we are. And I don't think that's a detriment. We as women can achieve greatness, but sometimes we fall down and that is totally okay. We are powerful. We are powerful and we will get back up again. To end all of this, not on a downer, I think that I'm becoming a big Mario Bava fan and Barbara Steele fan, so excuse me while I go watch more movies. Black Sunday was Mario Bava's first credited directing job that established many gothic tropes that would be replicated by other directors with family curses and love beyond the grave. It was an atmospheric film that uses light and darkness to make the actress Barbara Steele both alluring and repulsive object of desire. The representation of what is both loved and despised in all women, our dual nature. Asha is representative of what all men fear, a strong woman who has the power to enact vengeance on those who have wronged her. She is a she-devil and wicked woman, whereas her descendants Masha and Katya are the innocent and pure women who are preyed upon by these dark women and who men feel they must protect and shield them from such vile evil. But it is not just their innocent that drives these men to protect them, but it's because they fulfill a sexual desire in men to exert their dominance and feel manly in comparison to the modest and pure woman of their attention. In The Long Hair of Death, we see how the innocence of a young woman makes them vulnerable and easy prey to male predators who use them to murder, rape, and use sexual coercion and domestic abuse to Build their own power and reputation. We see the duality of women who are initially delicate and pure, and then they must become deceptive and calculating to right the wrongs that have been done against them and their family. Barbara Steele has also played similar dual roles in The Pit and the Pendulum, and another one of my favorite films of hers, which is Nightmare Castle, where she plays the adulterous Muriel, killed by her husband, and then Muriel's stepsister, a sweet, innocent, and mentally unstable Jane, has comes to the home and has ended up being taken advantage by Muriel's husband. She has a knack for portraying both vulnerable and seductive, inhabiting within her the reality of what is inherent in women, both good and bad. However, in cinema, it has been and continues to portray women in either be innocent and pure, domesticated girlfriend, and the inevitable wife that uplifts her husband and his masculinity, or be the independent and wild woman, but is seen as a threat to the patriarchy and his ability to control women. We are seeing more of this merging of this dual identity women, and at some point, it will be accepted as a reality of a woman's existence, but for now, it is viewed as monstrous, and we know that that is okay, because if my dark side is being seen as monstrous, then I welcome it because she tends to protect my vulnerability. And that ends our episode, exploring the duality of women as depicted by the great actress Barbara Steele in the 1960s gothic classics Black Sunday and the Long Hair Death. We want to thank Dance with the Dead for our intro and outro music, Robeast, and for Brandon for all of his work on our promotional materials. Also to all you listeners, and we want to remind you to follow us on our website at spinstersofhorror.com, Facebook, Spinsters of Horror, as well as our coven group at Spinsters of Horror. <laughs> Yes, we're also on Twitter at Horror Spinsters. We're on Instagram at Spinsters of Horror. Please rate and review us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and any podcasting app you listen to us on. We have merch, so please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and buy stickers from our shop. But also, if you want to click that donation button, we wouldn't say no. Next month, folks, it is an absolute free-for-all. Yeah. You heard it here. But also, something huge is afoot. We are celebrating the two-year anniversary of the Spinsters of Horror and I Spit on Your Podcast. Yay! Oh, shit. (laughs) Uh, So we have a lot of diverse things planned for the month of July to celebrate. But of course, until then, remember, the future of fear is female. 